the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Lord of the harvest, send the rain. 
We need revival. What is revival? It's simply the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is a new beginning of obedience to God because He has come. In John, the 14th chapter, Jesus said, If you love me, you'll obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love him and show myself to him. It's very clear that it's the intent of Jesus in these last hours before he's crucified to comfort his disciples and to tell them what's going to happen in the future. In John fourteen twenty six, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and it will remind you of everything I've said to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus wants to come and actually dwell in us. If our faith in Jesus is based on Scripture, and that is the only basis we have, he's telling us, I want a very intimate relationship with you. I want us to be one. Now, if we're going to be one in Jesus, we're going to have to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus and he is a spirit being. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit three in one. The Holy Spirit wants to bring Jesus into our very being. He wants a personal, intimate oneness with us who have chosen to follow him and believe in his word. I'm frankly heartbroken when I look at my past history and see how long I have struggled with the gospel to proclaim it and teach it without the fullness of the Holy Spirit and revival power. I've been crippled. 
And we're now praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that he would come in mighty power. And today on this broadcast, we're going to share some stories, the purpose of which is to encourage you to take at least one hour a day and pray for the Holy Spirit's baptism. Now, have I received the Holy Spirit? According to Ephesians 1, yes, and in my experience, I have that wonderful sealing of the Holy Spirit that every Christian who is born from above has. Have I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit for power? No, I haven't, and I don't know anyone in America who has received it. That's not to say it did not come. He did not come many times in the past. He has. And when he came, everything changed. There was a new beginning of obedience to God. God came. We need God to come again. So this is Pilgrim's Progress. We're glad you're with us today. In the studio, live with me is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. We're from the National Prayer Chapel. And we're happy that you're here. So listen as we share some exciting stories with you. And then get ready to pray. Yes, and we're reading from Can Revivals Be Prayed Down by Lyle Eggleston. Now, you won't only hear stories. The stories are just maybe about half of the material which we'll share. The second half is very practical how to actually go about praying for revival. So the question is asked, can revivals be prayed down? This pastor and his wife had just emerged from a heart-rending experience. Their little boy had contracted what is commonly known as sleeping sickness, and the doctors gave them no hope for his recovery. The people of the church loved the pastor and his family, so some of them spent hours in prayer, begging God to intervene. The Christian lady helping to care for the child had almost nothing to do, for her patient scarcely moved. It was now Saturday, and the boy had been asleep a full week. The lady passed the time reading, adjusting the ventilation in the room, and swatting an occasional fly. As she rose out of her chair to wallop another fly, she noticed that the child's eyes were open. For a long moment, she stared in disbelief, and then she dashed out of the room to call the parents. When the three of them returned, his eyes were still open, and he was in fact seeing and conscious. They asked him questions, and he answered. In a matter of minutes, the doctor came. He, too, questioned the boy and then began a thorough examination. He found not a thing wrong. Their little son was normal. The next day was Sunday, the day I was there. In the morning service, the pastor tried to express his and his wife's gratitude to those who had prayed with such diligence for their son. His voice was heavy with emotion. When he finished, he hesitated for a moment and then asked a question which I was not able to forget. He said, How is it that we can't pray with that same interest 
the same determination and the same fervor for the unsaved people all around us every day. I did not know how to answer that question then. That was several years ago. I believe I do now. Satan has us conned. Sometime down through the years, the devil started a whispering campaign. It went like this. Revivals are great. There's just nothing like them. People get saved by the thousands. But you know, there's something weird about them. They only come when God gets around to sending one, and there isn't a thing that the believer can do to influence that. I first became aware of this when we came home on our furloughs from the mission field. Visiting relatives, friends, and supporting churches here in the States, we traveled almost constantly. In our conversations with the pastors and church leaders, I frequently brought up the subject of intense prayer with the possibility of revival and I was surprised at the number of negative responses. Some would say, Well, I believe that the time of Wesley, Whitfield, and Finney was a special dispensation of God's grace, and for us to expect the same today would be unrealistic. You will note that there has been no revival of significance since the Welsh revival back in 1904. Others said, Our God is sovereign, and he will send us a revival when he sees that we need it and there isn't a thing we can do about it. Still others said, It would be foolish for us to expect a revival now, because we are getting too close to the second coming of Christ. When I broached the subject to an elderly missionary lady in Chile, she exclaimed, Oh my, yes! Her voice was loaded with concern. How badly we do need a revival. And almost in the same breath, she said, I wonder if it's going to rain tonight. So there have been no significant life-changing, nation-changing revivals since 1904. We'd like to share with you some of the stories, though, of revival. That show that that statement is not true. It is not true. Uh, Revivals come in response to intense prayer. In Korea and China in 1907, there was a Canadian man by the name of Jonathan Goforth. He went to China before the Boxer Rebellion, before 1900. And in the succeeding years, Missionary Goforth became more and more dissatisfied with the results of his work. During the early pioneering years, he consoled himself with the belief that there had to be a a time of seed sowing. The harvest would come in time. But after 13 years had passed, the harvest seemed as far away as ever. And the verse in John 14, 12 kept coming to his mind. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. So he was restless, he was discontent. He spent more and more of his time studying the scriptures, especially those passages that related to the acquisition of the power Jesus promised through the Holy Spirit. He also carefully read the account of the Welsh Revival, 1904. 
He also read the autobiography of Charles Finney. In 1906, one of his mission leaders invited Mr. Goforth to accompany him on a trip into North Korea. A great revival was going on. There the missionary saw firsthand the boundless possibilities of the revival. He'd been in Korea only a short time when someone explained to him the source of the great movement. It had begun with prayer on the part of the Methodist and the Presbyterian missionaries. They had heard the news of a revival in India and only two or three years before, so they began spending an hour each day asking God to bless them in the same way. When they concluded that just one hour a day was perhaps not enough, they changed and began to pray from 4 to 6 p.m. every day. The answer came like a rolling prairie fire, and the revival spread across all of Korea. Mr. Goforth saw tens of thousands of men and women whose lives had been completely transformed by the power of God. More than 50,000 converts were added to the church. On his way back to China, he stopped off at mission, several mission stations in Manchuria. At each station, he was asked to give them a report on what he had seen, and his listeners were spellbound by what they heard. Consequently, the leading men of the different areas asked Mr. Goforth to come back for a series of meetings. When he did return, he went with the assumption that it was sin alone in the lives of individual church members that was grieving the Holy Spirit, the sins that are common among Christians, such as pride or jealousy, bad temper, backbiting, unforgiveness. These must be confessed and dealt with before the power of God could be demonstrated. At the end of the first meeting, an elder in this church in Manchuria stood up and confessed that as treasurer of the church, he had taken money from the funds to use in his own business. The effort, the effect was immediate, and many others tearfully confessed first one kind of sin and then another. The movement increased in intensity until the that same year hundreds of members who had drifted away returned to the churches and bands of Christians began going out over a wide area of the country preaching the gospel with great effect. In one village there lived a notorious gambler he saddled his donkey one morning, intended to go off to collect a gambling debt. But when he got to the edge of town, the animal refused to go a step further. So he beat and cursed his donkey. But the only way the donkey would go was south. So the man finally had to yield, for after all, there was a, a, a man down that way who was owing him some money too. Things went well until they came to a fork in the road. And, as one might guess, the donkey insisted on taking the left fork. Fortunately, that road led past a church where there was a revival in process. That's exactly where the animal stopped. 
Now the rider was intrigued by the sound of the singing, so he dismounted to see what it was all about. And that's where he was saved. In the succeeding years, Mr. Goforth was invited to mission after mission all across North China. In each series of meetings, he saw amazing changes in the lives of both the Christians and the unbelievers. In his concluding remarks, in his little book, By My Spirit, he says, We wish to state emphatically as our conviction that God God's revival may be had when we are willing when we will and wait a minute let me read this exactly that God's revival may be had when we will and where we will he then quoted Dwight L. Moody speaking about Acts 1 and 2 Dwight L. Moody was continually urging that Pentecost was merely a specimen day. That is, it was not just an episode in Christian history, nor was it a big bang affair to get the gospel off to a good start, but it was something Christians around the world would imitate. Another revival came in 1916 in the country of Burma. In the book Beyond the Ranges, James Fraser's biographer tells us of his years of intense striving to win the Lisu tribe of Burma to the Lord. This was 1916, and the native people were primitive in the extreme, pagan and totally corrupt. They worshipped demons and ate food so vile that the missionary would sometimes have to starve himself before he could eat it. He had prayed long hours for them and had also kept his family and friends back in England informed, so they could back him in prayer. But in spite of it all, it seemed that the Lisu were beyond hope of salvation. Finally, in desperation, Fraser told the Lord he would make one last trip around his circuit of mountain homes and villages. Should he see no more interest in spiritual things than he had seen before, he would take it as an indication to move to a more receptive field. The first night of his trip, he stayed with a family he had known well, but he went to bed saddened because he saw nothing in their attitude but the usual apathy. In the morning, as Fraser was preparing to leave, the father astounded him with the flat statement that he and his family wanted to turn from demon worship and go God's way. The missionary could scarcely believe his ears. After this first family had made the break, others followed. All during his journey, calls came to him from villages high up on the mountainside or deep down in the canyons. Not only family after family, but entire villages made a public decision to turn from darkness to light. In all, they calculate that some 20,000 of the Lisu came to Christ at that time. You know, there's such a difference between revival and evangelism. And I'm grateful for all of those who were involved in evangelism. But when God comes, everything changes. And now suddenly, thousands are swept into the kingdom of God. In 1932, there was a revival in North China. Miss Bertha Smith, 
a longtime Southern Baptist missionary to North China, tells this story. She said that the mission problems had grown to such a proportion that during the mealtimes in the mission house, they agreed not to discuss all their headaches. The work in the churches was dead, and evidence of sin among the Christians was everywhere. There were only three students in their Bible Institute, and when they gathered and graduated, they voiced all sorts of complaints as to where they would work and how they could possibly live on that salary. It was at this point that the wife of one of the missionaries began losing her eyesight. She was taken to a specialist who told her husband that the infected eye would soon damage the other one and she would become totally blind. Her husband could not bear the thought of his wife being blind for the rest of her life. He believed that God was able to prevent it if they prayed. So it was they invited others of the missionary body who believed, as he did, to straighten up their spiritual lives and join him in prayer for his wife at the end of the week. When the day arrived, there were five or six in the group, and they had the lady sit in a chair in the center of the room. The plan was to place their hands on the top of her head and to pray for God to intervene in her case. Miss Smith said that as she reached out her hand to put it on the others, she saw that hers would rest on that of one of her colleagues whom she had offended deeply some years before. Instantly she knew that if she prayed with that sin between them, it would spoil the effort of the whole group. So just there, where she stood, she summoned up all of her courage and humbly asked the other lady to forgive her. When the problem had been settled, they all placed a hand on the lady's head and prayed. In a very short time, each one in the group sensed the blessed assurance that God was going to answer their prayers. And almost at once, they all began to praise God and to shout and laugh for sheer joy. It was then only a matter of days until the lady's eyesight was completely restored and remained that way. The experience served to unite the missionary body in prayer for revival in their mission work. Miss Smith did not say how long they prayed, nor how many of them participated, but apparently it was not long before God answered and revival came. The first effect was a cleansing of all the churches. Those who were living in sin could not stand the conviction of the Holy Spirit and withdrew, but immediately the churches filled to ten times their former number. There were so many applicants for entrance to the Bible Institute that the high school had to be converted into a Bible Institute. It had room for 150 students, and for years afterward it was filled to capacity. The Chinese farmers who were converted in the revival, not having work they could do during the winter, would pair up and walk as far as the neighboring provinces, witnessing and winning souls for Christ. We then come to the revival in Scotland in 1949. In 1949, the churches in the Hebrides were almost empty, 
there were few if any conversions and young people had all but ceased attending the Sunday services. In desperation, the ministers appealed to pe the people in their neighborhood for help. As a result, a group of men, led by the minister of the parish church of Barvis, covenanted together with God to prevail in prayer until revival came. Meeting in an old building by the roadside three nights a week, from ten o'clock until after midnight, they knelt down in the straw and pleaded with God to do something. After three months, they saw no change, but instead of becoming discouraged, they said, We are three months nearer to the answer than when we started. God is a covenant-keeping God. He must stand by his promise. We must go on till the break comes. One night, about two months later, a deacon from the free church rose from his knees and began to read from Psalm 24, 3 through 5. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Brethren, said the deacon, we have been praying for months for revival, waiting upon God. But are our hearts clean? Are our hearts pure? In answer, they fell upon their knees in confession and rededication and began to travail in prayer even more earnestly. About four o'clock in the morning, after they had spent hours in soul-searching, the power of God suddenly swept upon the seeking men. With great expectancy, Many people gathered at the old parish church for the first meeting, but nothing unusual happened. About thirty spent the night in a nearby cottage in prevailing prayer, and about three o'clock in the morning, they suddenly sensed God's power. Leaving the cottage, the prayer warriors found men and women everywhere, seeking God. Lights were burning in homes along the road. Residents could not sleep. Three men were found lying by the roadside, crying for God to have mercy on them. The second night, busloads of people from all over the island crowded into the church, including seven men converted in a butcher's truck on the way. It was a tremendous meeting, with many saved. As the last person was about to leave, 17-year-old Donald Smith, a new convert, began to pray aloud for those people still lost. For 45 minutes he continued praying, and as he prayed, crowds outside continued to grow, with more people arriving from farther away. When an elder announced Psalm 132, people streamed back into the church, singing this hymn. There, the meeting continued until 4 a.m. Mm. At the close, an excited messenger told the preacher, There's a crowd of people outside the police station weeping in awful distress, and they're calling for someone to come and pray with them. Then, Duncan Campbell saw an unforgettable sight. Men and women were kneeling everywhere under the starlit sky by the roadside, outside their cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy on them. There were nearly 600 people involved. For five weeks, the revival swept on in that parish, with four preaching services following one another through the night. Then it began to spread to other districts. Arnold, a small village of 500, was locked in religious indifference against the revival. In desperation, a little prayer group met. Just after midnight, Donald Smith rose and prayed, Lord, you made a promise. You have said that you will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. 
Isaiah 44.3. At the same time, the convicting Spirit of God was sweeping into that village. After the meeting, the preacher walked to a neighbor's house for a glass of milk. There he found the lady of the house with seven others down on their knees, crying for pardon. Fishermen out in their boats, men behind their looms, merchants with their vans, school teachers examining their papers, were all suddenly convicted of their sins by the Holy Ghost. By ten o'clock that morning, the roads around the town were dotted with seekers. Within two days, the usually crowded drinking house was permanently closed, and fourteen young drunkards were converted, who are now pillars of the church. In less than forty-eight hours, nearly every young person in that town between the ages of twelve and twenty had surrendered to Christ, and every young man over eighteen was faithfully attending the midnight prayer meetings. Today, they are new men, new women, new young people in the islands of the Hebrides. They have new homes and new lives, and they live in a new world of peace and happiness. Many are in full-time service for the Lord. And it doesn't record it in this story, but there was another prayer meeting going on at the same time with two blind sisters, and they prayed, I think, for several years for revival in the Hebrides. So that's an encouragement, because even if you don't know whether others are praying for revival or not, God is hearing all of us. You know, revival is what we have to have. And we're sharing these stories with you to encourage you to pray. Intense prayer is the answer. It's the key. We serve a covenant-keeping God. And if we're going to have the change in America that is necessary, it's not going to be a half-hearted effort. It's going to be men and women who, recognizing the time, earnestly begin to pray that God will come and visit us one more time. Now, there's plenty of evidence that power through prayer did not stop with Wesley or Whitfield or Finney. It's also clear that revivals don't drop down out of the sky unexpected. Dr. R.A. Torrey, who worked for years with Dwight Moody, saw several firsthand, both overseas and in the United States, had this to say about the relation of prayer to revival. The history of the Church of Jesus Christ on earth has been largely a history of revivals. Humanly speaking, the Church of Jesus Christ owes its very existence to revivals. Time and again, the church seemed to be on the verge of utter shipwreck. But just then, God sent a revival and saved it. If you study the history of revivals, you'll find that every revival in the church has been a child of prayer. There have been revivals with absolutely no organization, but there has never been a mighty revival without mighty praying. Just after the awakening in the Hebrides in 1949, Duncan Campbell, who was greatly used of the Lord during that time, 
and we plan this week to share with you a sermon that Duncan Campbell gave and shared the full story of what happened in Lewis and also on an island. Uh, he said, I believe every church can have what we experienced here in the Hebrides. There's no mystery, but there is a secret. If God can find a people prepared to pray and pay the price, self-searching, he will visit them in the same revival power. Now let me share a paragraph from correspondence with that wonderful old missionary Alexander Reed, one of the three who led the prayer effort in the Congo in 1929. As you may well know, God does not limit himself to large numbers, but where two or three meet the conditions, God answers prayer. As told in my book, The Congo Drumbeat, my heart became so deeply burdened after a time here in the Congo we felt something had to be done about it. And we had but two or three missionaries among the crowd and no African colleagues who understood anything about soul travail and prevailing prayer. But together, we decided to fast and pray every Friday evening together. We left our evening meal and met in one of the homes for prayer. I don't think it was the sacrifice of meal, but through the pressure of soul-agonizing prayer that God gave the victory. Though we pursued the practice with great regularity, even when I was traveling on a big district, I fasted the evening meal and reached out after God in soul-longing prayer. So what is the first step? What shall we do? Should we go and talk to our pastor and convince him to dedicate an evening every week to pray for revival? No, not yet. There's something else that must be done first. In Psalm 66:18, there is something of great importance to anyone planning intensive prayer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Those words mean exactly what they say because there is something about sin that short-circuits our prayers. I found that out the hard way years ago. Listen to what Dr. Tory says on the same subject in the same verse. Sin is an awful thing, and one of the most awful things about it is the way it hinders prayer, the way it severs the connection between us and the source of all grace and power and blessing. Anyone who would have power in prayer must be merciless in dealing with his own sins. Here is what the missionaries in the Solomon Islands concluded before they began praying for revival in 1936. They saw that they themselves had been ignoring the sin in their own attitudes, such as rivalry, pride in its many forms, fear, and unbelief. They had been regarding, the, regarding these things as unimportant or even unavoidable. Even though we are Christians, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we may still have a sin nature and say and do things that are hurtful to others. Those things are not unimportant, nor are they unavoidable. They are sin, and must be dealt with as any other sin in our lives. There is some fuzzy thinking in the minds of many Christians, 
about asking for forgiveness or making restitution. They will argue that confessing a sin to God is all that is necessary. In some cases, yes, but note what this verse says. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Matthew 5, 23-24 Here is another paragraph from Missionary Goforth on that same subject. We believe, too, that as regards secret sin, i.e. sin which is known only to the individual soul in God, to confess it at the private altar is, as a rule, sufficient to ensure pardon and cleansing. As to sin against an individual, the scriptures are quite plain. It is vain for us to pray while conscious that we have injured another. Let us first make amends to the injured one before we dare approach either the private or public altar. As regards public sins, experience has shown us that these can only be swept away by public confession. True, this amounts to crucifixion, but by our willful disobedience, we have put the Lord of glory to an open shame, and public confession is the price that we must pay. Let me go back for a moment to the missionary Miss Bertha Smith in China, when they were about to put their hands on the lady's head who was losing her eyesight. Suppose that Miss Smith had not had the courage and honesty to confess her fault to the other missionary. Very probably, the healing would not have occurred, and neither would there have been the spiritual life that propelled the group to pray for the revival that blessed their entire area so wonderfully. Just in case the reader is still unconvinced of the need for clean hands and a pure heart before the Lord, here are two verses of scripture very clear on that point. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, 1-2 Obviously, the first step in preparing to pray for revival is dealing with the sin in one's own life. And a good way to start is to keep a pencil and notepad handy while one is praying or reading scripture. Anything that constantly comes up to interrupt your communion with the Lord should be noted. Paul says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Acts twenty four sixteen. A nurse in another church was making some side money doing abortions. God convicted her of it, and she vowed that she would do it no more. She then took her kit of instruments and drove her car out on a big bridge that spanned a river coming down from the east side of the Andes. She stopped the car and tossed the instruments over the railing into the river. Making an apology or restitution is one of the most difficult things a believer is asked to do. But just here, we can offer a word of encouragement and consolation. In most cases where the Lord has squeezed us into asking forgiveness, he will have gone ahead and worked in the heart of the other person so that the injured party may receive you in a way that you had not imagined. Remember how frightened Jacob was when he got the news that his brother Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men? But God did something in Esau's heart so that when they met, he was actually delighted and hugged Jacob. Now, if you've not quite had the courage to straighten up some sin in your life 
and you're invited to participate in a time of prayer, it is wiser to decline than to risk short-circuiting the prayer of the entire group. So, let's talk about prayer for revival in the last minutes of our broadcast today. It's not necessary that the whole church start praying to begin with. Great revivals always begin in the hearts of a few men and women whom God arouses by His Spirit to believe in Him as a living God, as a God who answers prayer and upon whose heart He lays a burden from which no one can rest until they cry out to God. But suppose that there's no one else around. You know of no one who has a burden for revival. That could very well be your case. But there's no reason why you yourself should not begin praying alone for revival. Perhaps the Lord will put you in contact with one or two others in your area who are interested. Even though he might not, David Brainerd prayed alone and then whole villages of Indians, men, women, and children, all turned to the Lord. James Fraser in Burma also prayed alone, with the exception of a few relatives on the other side of the world in England, and some 20,000 of the people came to the Lord. If there should be one or two or three neighbors or friends who have an interest in prayer for revival, then start a little meeting with them. Smaller prayer meetings, more flexible than a larger one. It's easier to agree on the time and the gathering together as well at a place where you can pray. You don't have to be inside a church. A living room is perfectly fine. Many Christians have the notion that the more people they can induce to come to a prayer meeting, the better. But that's not necessarily true. You may have 30 or 40 in your group, but among them, there could be one or more Aikens. If you don't know what Aiken is, go and read Joshua, the seventh chapter. It's not those who pray the loudest or the longest as one person seemed to do until it was discovered that she was a cook in the house of prostitution. So some thought needs to be given to how you should carry on your meeting. There will be brethren who feel that each prayer time should be opened with a devotional talk. That's fine if the study is kept short and relative to the purpose of your prayer. The problem is all too often, the devotional gets longer and longer and the prayer time shorter and shorter. Besides that, if you'll notice, much of the time the Bible portions presented in the study will have no relationship whatever to the purpose of the meeting. So if you're going to open with some something from the scripture, keep it short and related to the purpose of your prayer. We found that reading accounts of some of the revivals through church history is very helpful to a group praying for revival. Well, what about kneeling down for prayer? Fine, no problem. But remember the elder people, elderly people with 
arthritic joints may find the position so painful that they can't concentrate on what's being prayed. To be sure, the kneeling position is an act of reverence before an almighty God, but it's not the only way prayers can be offered. When Israel was fighting Amalek in the desert, Moses prayed sitting down on a rock. When the Holy Spirit came on the 120 in the upper room, they were all sitting. And who knows what position Jonah was in when he prayed in the belly of the whale. Well, what about amens and other injected phrases during prayer? If they're sincere, they serve a good purpose. The person praying will know that he's on a warm theme and that the others are accompanying him in thought and purpose. Once you've reached a degree of harmony in your time together, you can decide how often you wish to meet. Remember that the brethren in the Hebrides in Scotland prayed three nights a week. The three missionaries in the Congo fasted and prayed every Friday evening. When the Methodist and the Presbyterian missionaries in Korea decided that one hour a day perhaps was not enough and began meeting from 4 to 6 p.m. every day in a matter of weeks, the lightning bolt of revival struck and like a rolling prairie fire went the length and breadth of Korea. Finally, there are a few things that should be avoided because they will cripple a prayer meeting. The most common method is long, dragged-out prayers. We've all been in these meetings where someone prays for 15 minutes. He might give the names of every person he's praying for, the street on which they live. We don't want to do that. Instead... Stop before you feel like you're through in your prayers. Keep your prayers short to the point, and you'll find that it invigorates the entire meeting. You want to have some consideration for the person next to you who also wants to participate. When the others have prayed, you can pray a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And this is one of the secrets of a prayer meeting that may go on for two or three hours. If there is no set closing time, and the companions are praying well, then keep going. If you have grown to the point where you can pray for several hours, it's helpful to stop and rest every hour or so. Moving around the room or having a cup of coffee tends to relax you so that you can go back to the same petitions with renewed vigor. There's another unconscious act that will spoil the harmony of prayer time. Sometimes, when praying in homes, an individual will kneel at a couch or a chair with their backs to the rest of the group, and then they pray in a voice that is completely inaudible. The others cannot hear and follow their thought, so their minds wander and boredom sets in. When it comes your time to pray, face the rest of the group and speak loudly enough for everyone to hear. In groups praying specifically for revival, care must be taken that the purpose of the meeting is not sidetracked to lesser concerns. For example, the prayer may be going along well when one of the people in the group will ask for his cousin to be prayed for or his neighbor. So they include these. In the next meeting, they pray for them again and then add more people. So we're not saying that these types of prayers should be ignored, but unless they're limited, they will soon absorb the entire time and destroy the original purpose of prayer for revival. Those kinds of requests should be prayed for at another time or in the individual's private devotions. Suppose that someone has already prayed for revival, then what do I pray for? 
Do I repeat what he has already prayed? Well, we can look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He repeated his prayer three times, even saying the same words. Jesus also gave us the parable of the importunate friend. Jesus said, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him bread, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will arise and give him as many as he needs. Suppose that one of your loved ones was critically ill or injured, and your only hope was in God's mercy. Would you state your petition only once, and then get up and dust off your knees and go about your work? Not likely. You would cry out to God over and over again, just as long as the hours and minutes were in your favor. I... We're almost out of time for this broadcast. There's more we want to share with you, and I urge you, be present with us tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We're going to speak again about very practical issues for praying, for revival. This is the key. We're called to pray, and God answers. He is a God who answers prayer because he wants to be one with us. He wants to come and live in us. He wants us to be soul winners. He only gave one commission, and that was to make his disciples fishers of men and to send us forth with a gospel commission, whether you're working at a government desk or in business or a stay-home mom, wherever you are, your commission is the same, to win the lost to Jesus. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra Greenley, and we're from the National Prayer Chapel. Would you go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com? That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen again to this message's message and many others that will help you as you allow God to stir your heart for revival. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Join us again tomorrow at the same time. Before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.